Hello and welcome to Boston Private's Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director here at Boston Private. Today I'm joined by Rick Ross, a partner at Denton's, where he heads up the firm's global hotels and leisure practice and is also co-chair of their global family office group. Today we'll discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the hotel and hospitality sector. We'll cover the relationship of family offices to this industry and also examine what the future might hold for both hotel investors and guests. Rick, thanks for joining us today. Uh, he works with Rick works with many family offices around the world and has a deep background in the hotel space. And I look forward to getting your thoughts uh, on this topic today. Well, Rick, to kick things off, uh, you know, give us a little bit about your background. Sure, Eddie. Thanks. It's nice to be here with you. I've been a lawyer now for 43 years. Uh, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and I've lived here this whole time. Uh, even though none of my clients are here, this is still where I call home. Uh, I started my career as a traditional real estate lawyer, but about 35 years ago, I started working heavily in the hotel and resort space. And by the early 90s, I was doing work exclusively in this sector. Uh, I'm now a partner at Denton's and chair of the firm's nationally top-ranked global hotels and leisure practice. And as you mentioned, I co-chair the firm's global family office group. Uh, I'm really a sector specialist, so everything I do in this space that my clients are involved in is what I spend my time doing. So my clients are building resorts and hotels. They do this on their own. Sometimes they joint venture them with a developer, uh, and they are building properties that range from large mixed-use high-rise towers in urban environments to large uh, mixed-use resorts that often cover thousands of acres. My clients include publicly-owned corporations, publicly-owned REITs, sovereign funds, global private equity funds, and several family offices. Throughout my career, I've always enjoyed working for both sides of the table. I work for both the hotel owners and the operators, which I think actually has helped me be better at what I do for all of my clients, as I have a greater sense of the needs and challenges of both sides. What's really a bit unusual about what I do is given the position in Denton's, uh, I get to juggle deals and projects on six continents almost on a daily basis. So when I get up in the morning and check my messages, I actually never know what continent the next deal will be on. I get to work on great projects with great clients who above all are really great people. And I've developed great friendships with my clients as I've worked with many of them for five, 10, and often 20 plus years. That's great. I mean, uh, you, you touched on this a little bit in terms of uh, the globality of, of your practice and, and what you do at Denton's. Maybe you can expand on that because I, I know you've been looking at a lot of things, uh, especially as this crisis has evolved uh, at different parts of the globe. Sure. So Denton's is interesting because we've got about 11,000 lawyers in our firm in 83 countries and 174 cities. We're the largest law firm in the world. Uh, what's interesting is how you manage and run and operate a firm of this size and scale. We have one global chairman, one global CEO, we're both good friends, uh, global CFO and a global board. But interestingly, we have no headquarter office, none. We actually practice by practice groups, not cities or countries. So when a client calls and needs something, I actually have the benefit of a huge talent pool to draw upon 
And unless there's a reason to deal with a particular local law or custom, I'm actually agnostic to geography. Um, and I really enjoy that my two leadership positions are so closely connected with the hotel sector and the family office uh, industry. And what's interesting about Denton's as well, I think that it's really uh, interesting in today's world is that we've got about 18,000 employees globally. And like many companies, uh, our firm takes the safety and security of our people very seriously. It, it's really a, a root part of our firm's culture. So it was interesting uh, is that back when the Arab Spring situation occurred in 2010, we realized that we didn't have a good system in place to know if our lawyers, staff, and their families were, were safe. And that at the time, of course, was in Cairo. Um, and following that frustrating experience, we established our own internal chief global security officer and hired a full team of world-class professionals to create a state-of-the-art system and methodology um, within our own firm to deal with the personal safety and security of our people, as well as our data privacy matters. Uh, this is our intelligence and strategic services group, or as we, we call them, the ISS. Um, it's interesting how our global platform and security team came into play as the pandemic came about uh, in that we've got about 3,000 lawyers in our several China offices. So we were hearing back in January about people getting sick there. And I was also on emails with my partners in Seoul and Hong Kong and Singapore, who I work with on a regular basis and good friendships there with my partners. And we started getting updates from our ISS team on a regular basis uh, that something was going on and, and getting updates. And that's also the time when a number of, of our wealthy Chinese clients and friends were looking to go home for the Chinese New Year. And given what I was hearing and the reports I was getting, I was encouraging them to stay here in the U.S. And, and, and not head back to China for the holiday. It was also interesting at that time, Eddie, that I was hearing from my partners in Europe as things started to spread across that continent. So we saw this thing coming from both sides before it hit us here. And quite frankly, we were taking steps early on to quarantine people coming into our offices here in the U.S. who had traveled uh, here from Asia or Europe. Uh, so our clients and, and colleagues often are, are traveling uh, here to our offices. So I, I think our ISS team was way out in front of the situation and put in place some very protective protocols across all of our offices globally uh, as this pandemic emerged. Uh, it's very interesting uh, in terms of your viewpoint on that, and we'll, we'll uh, certainly I'd love to ask you some more questions about uh, how that played out with your clients, um, especially the ones that are focused on this space. Uh, maybe you could take a step back and, and talk about what drew you to getting involved with the hotel uh, industry in general initially. What, what was the driving factor there? Sure. It, 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 it's quite frankly a matter of what was fascinating and interesting to me because as I started doing, as I was doing my regular real estate work, I found the hotel work so much more interesting, candidly, than doing an office lease or a shopping center lease. And, and buying a hotel was so much more complex and interesting than buying a piece of dirt or an office building or another kind of asset class because of that operating business, uh, those characteristics of, of what a hotel really is sitting on top of a piece of real estate. So I found the work itself really fascinating. And honestly, I found the clients fascinating. Um, very interesting deals, very interesting people. 
And so more than 25 years ago, I actually decided to jettison all of my non-hotel clients, the other partners in my firm, and focus all of my time and effort in being uh, what I called a hotel lawyer, rather than being a real estate lawyer, a corporate lawyer, being a hotel lawyer. And back then, there were really only a few of us uh, doing that. And that's really why clients with having that specialized expertise started to fly me not only around the country, but around the world uh, to help them as they were doing hotel uh, acquisitions and development matters. So what I, I really did is embedded myself in this space to not only learn about the legal paradigms and issues, but also the business aspects of underwriting, building, financing, acquiring and operating a hotel or resort, and these mixed-use components like residential products that, that we see embedded in the hotels and resorts. So what was interesting to me is when, when I work with, with my clients, um, when I first start working with them, I often tell them that to be value-added, I need to know the deal as well as they do. Uh, so I actually read the pro formas, I read the projections, I read everything. I, I work through the business and legal aspects of what they're doing, which makes this really a fascinating, rewarding, and, and fun uh, practice for me. Um, quite frankly, it, it helps to have a great team. Uh, I view the practice of law, especially with what I do as a team sport, and honestly, I'm a great teammate. <laughs> they make me look good every day. Great. So uh, let's take this to, to the family office aspect of, of the hotel uh, space. You know, why has this been something that you know, you've seen as family offices being interested in the hospitality um, industry? And do you see that changing now post-pandemic or, or during the pandemic? Well, that's a really interesting question. You know, it, it's publicly known that there are dozens of family offices and ultra-high net worth individuals that have invested in the hotel space, not only here in the U.S., but across the globe. Some invest at the company level, and some like to own the assets, and some do both. Each of these individuals uh, and their advisors does this for a different reason. And although there are common themes, I think some of the reasons vary greatly. It's interesting as, as I speak with the families um, and we start to get in, engaged in the sector, some for the first time as they pursue this and, and look to understand it, some of them are looking for a long-term hold of an irreplaceable asset. Um, sometimes they view that as a, a source of income for their heirs to support their philanthropic uh, activities. Uh, one family in particular takes all the money from the hotel properties and, and funnels it right over to support their philanthropic foundations. Um, for others, I've seen it be a flight to safety for the family's capital into hard assets that generate income. Uh, other families uh, seek a higher cash-on-cash -cash yield than their investments, uh, than their other investments offer them, depending on the nature of the hotel. So you know, if you look at the different types of hotels in the sector, you've got limited service, properties like Hilton Garden Inns and Marriott Courtyards that have very significant um, returns and, and they're very different types of assets to own than a Ritz-Carlton or Four Seasons and different investors and different families like to own, quite frankly, very different types of hotels, some by across the sectors, but, but some like to focus on different particular types of assets in the sector. Is there a... Uh... Is, with that, Rick, is there a trend that you see of families owning more luxury versus uh, other types of uh, hotels within this space? 
certainly more of the well-known ultra high net worth individuals and families own hotels in the luxury sector. Uh, I think that's been much more common theme where they're owning, again, Four Seasons, Ritz-Carlton's, uh, St. Regis, Montage. Um, that that tends to be um, a Waldorf Astoria, obviously. So I, I think that's much more common. Um, but I do see a number of, of families that, that look at the underwriting, the, the cost associated of, of building or owning one of those assets and the cost of, of maintaining them at that level uh, is significant. And people have to understand what it means to own a luxury asset like that. Um, and some people choose to look at this on, on merely an investment basis and, and on an investment ROI, uh, whether you're an ROI investor or a yield investor, you know, looking at limited service assets is much more uh, interesting to a number of families than, than the luxury assets. But, but I'd say generally uh, it, it's much more common to see the ultra-high net worth families investing in the luxury space. And it, it's interesting. Um, one comment on that, if I may to finish that thought, is that sure. one of the things that has been interesting to me over the years is that a number of families, uh, individuals have told me that there's something very special about owning a luxury hotel or resort. Um, they get an unusual gratification from it. I, I remember one, one client uh, telling me that, you know, he says, I love my plane. I love my plane. Um, it's really special to me. Um, but there's no comparison of, of what kind of thrill I get when I walk into that hotel that's mine and what it is for me, for my family, for my friends, that I get to entertain them in this special place. Um, and I, I've had that happen many times, people, whether it's their plane, their boat, that there's something just special, that connection to this living, breathing luxury resort um, that just has an, an interesting reaction to a number of people. I also think, interestingly, that, that as this pandemic hit, um, and, and I've spoken with a number of families, as you'd expect, over the last several weeks, um, that, that some families will rethink their strategies as to this sector. Um, I think that people always understood that, that this is a industry where, you know, it's not like an office lease where you, you can lease the space out for several years or a retail space. You know, you have to rent the rooms out every night. Uh, again, it, it's a different kind of model, um, which is both good and bad, depending on the circumstances. You can obviously react to the market faster in a hotel than because you get to price to market. You mark to market literally every day. Um, but I think that no one anticipated or could fully appreciate the risks that a black swan event like this um, would bring to the industry. And, and some people are rethinking their investment strategy in this space, given what's happened, and others uh, recognize that this is an unprecedented black swan event and, and will continue their strategies as they have in the past. So let, let's talk about the market. I mean, we've had various uh, leaders uh, in the industry talk about safety and protection protocols, among uh, among other things, of sort of getting started back back up. Uh, it's it's not the first crisis that this industry's certainly faced in its history. 
I mean, you've been through so many of these recessions and downturns in your career. How is uh, how is this one similar or, or different? Well, yeah, I've been through a number of cycles uh, over the decades I've practiced and, and living through and working through 9-11 and the Great Recession were, were really challenging um, to see my clients and friends go through those really challenging times. But, but this one's nothing like those or anything that I've been through before. Uh, the circumstances of this pandemic have been so devastating on a personal level for so many people, so many families, so many businesses. Uh, I mean, everyone who reads the, the paper, watches the news, realizes that the hotel industry has been hit as hard or harder than maybe any other sector, um, certainly I think worse than the airlines. And I've never seen anything quite like this. And the challenges to my clients have been unprecedented, um, both from a legal perspective and from a personal perspective. Um, I, I speak with clients where not only we've had the layoffs at the property levels, but at the corporate offices. Um, it, it's just been really a, a devastating uh, experience to, to watch and, and participate in, quite frankly. Um, Maybe I'll share with you a little bit of what I've, what I've been dealing with over the past four to six weeks, um, yep. giving you some real-world examples and situations I've been dealing with, which, quite frankly, I've never had to deal with before. Uh, my clients have and I haven't. Um, so one example was I remember a call in, in early March that came from a general counsel of a big company called me up and said, Rick, I've got some people on the line. I need to, to talk to you about something. We need your help. And I said, sure. He and on the others. And we had an assistant GC, the president, the COO of, of the company, and a general manager, an assistant general manager of one of the hotels that they own and operate. And what they were calling about, they're all saying on the phone, what they were calling me about is that the GM had just called corporate office to say that their hotel, which was 83% occupied at the time, so it was pretty full, they, they had learned that they had a couple at the hotel and she's sick. And they called because they didn't know what to do. What, what steps should they take given what was going on? And interesting, from a timing perspective, I remember that it was the same day that President Trump declared the national emergency. So I sat there and listened to what was happening, and then came that scary question, Rick, what do I do? And so I had to be quick on my feet and think about this, but no one trains you for this stuff. So I, I remember telling them that the first thing we need to do is, is call the local health department and, and see what guidance we could get from them. And quite frankly, I told them to get it in writing so we have a paper trail. Um, Get it, can we get a letter? Can we get an email? Something where we, because I wanted to be sure we were getting direction from the health department and, and following those instructions. Um, and then I told them, quite frankly, this, is, this isn't going to be the first time we, we face this stuff. We need to, to identify someone in the company who's going to keep the paper trail on all the hotels as to what we do and, and tracking this. So we've got a good paper trail across the organization as to what we were doing. Um, we then I told them to follow clearly the directive from the health department. They told us to keep the couple in their room 
that the couple should be told to stay in the room. And, and so the, the GM says to me, Rick, well, what if they decide to leave the room? What do we do then? So I reminded them that, that they can't force the couple to stay in their room. So we had to establish protocols of posting someone outside, um, not just their door, because that would be inappropriate um, as to other guests of what we were, just, we were doing. So I had someone on the floor uh, from the hotel, one of our employees, and, and if the couple came out, they were told to go remind them to, that they've been asked by the health department to stay in their room and, and please encourage them to do so. But I told them if they leave the room, they should follow them and, and video them on their iPhone so that we could know who else they came in contact with, what they touched, so we could deal with sanitization issues. Um, and so we went through a process of, you know, how do we deal with feeding them and dropping the, the food outside the door, dealing with changing linens, and, and how often we're going to do that and exchange those outside the door, and, as well as the, the trash and the pickup. So we had to just think through these things, um, just operationally, of how we were going to deal with that. And then I had to pivot quickly to think about this on a broader perspective as to how we deal with the other guests in the hotel. Um, what do we do? Do we tell them? Do we not tell them? We've got privacy laws, so we can't disclose, you know, who is sick, and, and, and that would be inappropriate. And then how do we deal with new guests who come into the hotel? Do we put them on notice? What, what do we say to them? How do we say, um, explain to them the situation? I actually found myself immediately after the call drafting a notice um, that would be posted outside each entrance to the hotel. I then had to think about the issues as to the employees, you know, what, what steps do we need to take to protect the employees and the other guests? And so I had to sit there and think through, and this isn't sort of my day-to-day -day thing, candidly, but I had to think through all the legal duties that we owe to the employees under federal, state, and local laws, uh, reminding my clients about the OSHA laws and our duty to provide a safe working environment for our employees. Uh, then there are also what are called innkeeper laws that exist in, in all the states and, and talk about the duty that an innkeeper owes to the guests that come to a hotel. And these, these innkeeper laws go back to the old English laws um, from literally centuries ago. So it was a very challenging day as I worked through that situation and it, it was a fascinating day, but it, it, I had some nights where I had to toss a little bit trying to think through that because this wasn't just happening on that particular client and that deal here in the U.S. I was getting those calls from, from teammates and clients in London and Paris. So this was beyond you know, what was going on in New York and, and L.A. and here in the States. Uh, this, of course, was happening across the world, and, and, and my team and I had to be juggling these kinds of calls um, on, a, on a daily basis. It was very challenging um, and, and like nothing I've ever been through before. Uh, I'm sure those, those calls are continuing as, as this seems to evolve uh, uh, in different parts of the world. I'm curious though, did any of your family offices, were they, were they positioned well uh, b before this crisis? Are there some best practices that you saw uh, with, with your family office clients and in sort of the second part of that question I would how did uh, 
you know, your coverage of clients and working with clients in, in Asia and different parts of the world, did you see a, a pattern uh, as things developed uh, with, with uh, COVID-19, you know, from Asia to Europe uh, to North America? Well, it, it, it's interesting because I don't think anyone anticipated anything like this. And it was interesting because I think a lot of the family offices are, are generally very thoughtful, um, both on an internal and external basis, as, as to talking about you know black swan events and and, and what ifs, um, both from a business perspective, a philanthropic perspective, a family perspective, and I think that when when we saw um, that, so no one saw this coming, and and I think that. The, the families, though, generally, um, as they approach this sector, have always taken a conservative approach from an underwriting perspective. Um, I think that's, that's a, a general statement, but a, a, I think a good generalization um, that I can make about that. And when we saw the economy collapsing here in the U.S. as fast as it did um, with you know, 30 plus million people being unemployed in, in a 45 day period and, and a global shutdown like we've seen the last 90 days, um, it, it I think caused a lot of um, thoughtfulness in the family offices um, where, where I saw people, quite frankly, pivoting quickly, both internally and externally as to you know what? What are our best practices? What what should we be doing? What can we do now? And and it was really uh, inspiring, quite frankly, to see what you'd expect. Quite frankly, of them, you know, taking care of their people, you know, making sure everyone was safe and secure, um, doing what was best for the employees of the organization, and and looking at, at the family office as well as then at at the assets and the hotels and the employees there. And and then the pivot of, you know, from the philanthropic side, you know, what, what can we do to be helpful now? And I saw so many interesting um, events and, and, and activities where families were quickly pivoting to, to move um, funds into their local communities as well as nationally and internationally to help those in need and, and trying to get basic necessities of food and water um, to people in different parts of the country and the world. It, it was really an, an amazing thing to, to be able to observe and in some respects to be a part of. So uh, obviously things are in flux um, with, with what's going on on a, uh, with all the changes that uh, are, are happening on a legislative basis. There's different aid packages going on in different parts of the world. Uh, are there are there any additional sort of case studies or stories that you could share from some of your family office clients about how they how you've been dealing with this and helping them through um, this pandemic? Uh, sure. So, as you'd expect, there's no playbook for this. There's no precedent. Um, so, we were making this up as we were going along, just using our best judgment and experience to draw upon, and. And the craziest thing about the experience of the last 45 days or so was, was that 
the federal, state, and local pronouncements were coming out in a way that the rules were changing daily. So I was found that I, the device I was getting a client on Tuesday was no longer applicable by Thursday. And so, you know, I, I'm, it was just very um, challenging with every, you know, the governments were coming out with these, these pronouncements and, and then looking at them, what does that mean? And then circling back with everyone you've spoken with in the last 24, 48 hours and, and having to move things around to, to deal with the latest pronouncement um, from whatever government level it was coming from. Um, so what, what we were doing from the middle of March through the first week of April was dealing with the issues similar to the one I described earlier, um, that call of what do we do with a sick person in the hotel. And, and so that time was really fascinating because you know, my daily activities were, were combing through clients' material business contracts, you know, looking at what their rights were, their obligations were, their business relationships, and how these would all be impacted by the coronavirus and, and the new legal pronouncements that were coming out uh, from the various governmental agencies. And, and then looking at, as you would think about it, the concepts of material adverse change and force majeure clauses were, were obviously top of mind to clients and, and calling up and, and asking about, you know, do I have a force majeure uh, provision here that, that I should be you know, dealing with and speaking out to my counterparties on. And, and so we were frantically reading through key documents looking for impacts uh, of those clauses and, and, and were they there and how did they work in this situation. Uh, some of them, quite frankly, didn't apply. You know, some of them were clear in dealing with pandemics. Some didn't deal with them. Some excluded pandemics. And, and so we also found ourselves combing through documents looking for notice provisions in their contracts. For example, we found a number of, of, of contracts in the hotel with our hotel clients that if they wanted to claim a force majeure event, that, that it had occurred, that if you hadn't provided notice to your counterparty within 30 days of the event, then it, it was waived. You, you couldn't raise that. So we obviously didn't want to miss those kinds of timelines. So it was a very busy window that, that we were working through for those um, kinds of analyses and, and being able to give advice to our clients. And, and quite frankly, some of that's still going on. Um, the most challenging days were probably spent, though, dealing with the hotel owners and operators and their lenders, because uh, we can never forget the lenders. Uh, as to the strategies and decisions to cease operations at the hotels and, and the decision to lay off uh, and or furlough the employees at the property, uh, or actually at the company themselves. Uh, so we were dealing with property level employees and employees at corporate headquarter offices. And we'd be having calls where we were talking about thousands of employees that were gonna be affected. It was really a horrible situation. Um, there's, there's no way to describe on this call the uh, emotional aspects of how hard it was um, for my clients in dealing with those calls and those hard decisions. I spent days and nights working with our labor lawyers on warn notices that had to be given under federal and state laws to lay off the employees. Um, 
we also were working with the American Hotel Lodging Association. Um, they were releasing reports on the impact of the COVID-19 on the industry. Um, and what was happening is that we had 70, more than 70% of hotel employees being laid off or furloughed. Um, eight in 10 hotel rooms across the country are currently empty. And it, it's a very, very sobering experience because the, in the hotel industry, you know, we call it the hospitality industry, um, it's different than a lot of other businesses. And in, in, in our industry, you know, the employees are often referred to as associates, team members. Um, they're not typically referred to as employees. They're, it, it, it's a very different uh, culture to, to work in the hospitality industry and, and that special um, relationship that the employees have with the company where they really are trained to really learn about the hospitality industry and what it means to deliver that, that special guest experience that we all expect when we, we stay at a hotel. And, and so those employees become embedded in the culture of the brand and the brand becomes embedded in the culture of, 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 of the associates. So the process of, of ceasing operations and, and sending these people home was quite frankly really devastating. Um, and what was also really interesting, I thought, was as I think about this, is, is the dynamic of what was going on you might find interesting is that we had some hotel operators, given the circumstances, you know, wanting to close the properties due to their concern for the safety and well-being of the guests and, and their associates. And, and we had hotel owners that wanted to keep the hotels open, believing that some income is better than no income. And obviously, if you think about it, the owners still have fixed expenses. Even if the employees aren't there and we cut the payroll expense, we still, they still have to pay the mortgage. They've got to pay property taxes and insurance. All that still has to be paid. So we had a number of owners that, that really want to you know, keep it open and, and whatever business we get is better than nothing. Um, and then we had the other owners who took the opposite position who want to shut the hotels, uh, cut their losses um, that were associated with keeping it open. And, and in some of those situations, the operators actually wanted to keep it open rather than closing it. So we had a, a real difference of opinion in the number of situations that I was in the middle of trying to um, negotiate and arbitrate uh, through this. And sometimes we have owners and operators agree and then it'd be the lender that would disagree. Um, and, and that was also an interesting challenge. So I had these three-way negotiations going on uh, through that process. And so I had to look at this from both a business perspective and a legal perspective. And what was interesting from the legal side um, is that the underlying contracts, these management agreements and the loan documents that exist between the owner, the operator, and the lenders, you know, have often have a covenant in them requiring continuous operation of the hotel. So you can see in a loan document, the lender says to the to their borrower, the owner, you need to keep this hotel operating. Of course, that's important to the lender because that's where the money comes from to pay the loan. But you also had covenants in the documents that require the owner and the operator to comply with applicable laws. So. You think about it, what, what's been going on, 
You've got these covenants that require continuous operation, yet you've got government pronouncements from a local or state government telling you to shelter in place and that you, you need to be home and, and shelter in place. So even if a hotel was a important uh, place that had to be kept open under some state laws, they, the hotels were allowed to stay open, um, how do the employees get there? They're supposed to shelter in place. The, the owners, I have clients who are saying that, that to me that, you know, I don't want my employees to have to get on a subway and have to leave their homes and travel in a subway to the property, and get on a bus. So it, it, we have really conflicting dueling covenants going on. And in case you're curious, my, my advice to my clients was that, that the compliance of applicable laws trumped the covenant for continuous operations. Um, we made it clear to the lenders um, that we felt the obligation to comply with the applicable laws and the health and safety of the employees and the guests um, trumped the responsibility to keep the hotels open. And, and we were drafting COIA letters um, to the lenders um, to, to paper our position in that do regard. You see, but, do you see any changes yeah, with that? Times. Do you see any changes uh, on the legislative slide side for that to, to, to kind of uh, get things in line for in case something like this happens or a different crisis or similar, because it sounds like this could, this could happen again, or might've happened in a previous crisis. Well, I think in, in that regard, it, it, what we realize is, is if you think about what I just described is that, that we now recognize that we do have dueling covenants in these documents and people I think now need to have certainty of, of what provisions trump the others and I think that that there will be a, a clarity among lawyers now to look at force majeure clauses differently material adverse conditions differently to look at compliance with applicable laws differently than in the past I, I just don't think we've ever seen a situation where we've had such a confluence of, of federal, state, and local pronouncements um, the way we have in this pandemic. Certainly here in the United States, I don't think anywhere in the world before, but, but certainly not here in the U.S. And, and I think that's going to cause us as lawyers to look at our documents differently, and I think it will cause our clients to look at their businesses somewhat differently as, as they think about their business models and their operational circumstances um, differently. We, this, is, this has been you know, a, a good learning experience. It's been a, a horribly painful one, but, but again, I think one of the important lessons from this whole situation is you know, asking ourselves, what are the lessons learned? And, and shame on us if we don't pause to, to ask ourselves in all of our organizations and businesses, what are the lessons learned? Um, we're, we're doing that within our own law firm. I, I know my family office clients are, are doing that, and and all of us should be pausing and, and asking ourselves, you know, what are the lessons learned? And, and these are not just legal issues; they're they're business issues um, as well. So let let's shift gears a little bit to thinking about 
recovery and sort of resilience um, in this in this space. I mean, what do you think that we're going to see in terms of recovery across the various segments? You know, whether it's luxury or other pieces of it. I mean, and there any kind of metrics or signs that you uh, and indicators that family offices and and others that that they could use to you know to see if some if if there's improvement on the road or if things are on the mend well let me give you a little sense of, of where the lay of the land is at the moment um and and talk about where we are and then sort of what it might look like going forward so as we look at the industry right now from i'll give you a u.s perspective at the moment rather than trying to cover the whole globe on the on, on this question but but I think the U.S. is, is representative um, of, of many other markets, whether it, we're talking Europe, um, Middle East, you know, generally. But, but I think the U.S. snapshot would be that we've currently closed roughly 85% um, of the hotels, um, according to the, the institutional hotel asset managers. They reported that roughly 85% of portfolios have closed, and of the 15% uh, that are still open, uh, I read a recent report that 25 to 50% of those are doing purely corona-related business. So this is where the hotels, if you've, I'm sure, heard about the reports where hospital workers and first responders and patient care uh, are all being moved uh, into hotels right now as well as some housing for homeless. Um, so that's what the, 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 what's happening sort of out there in the space. And there's a general belief currently that 80% of all rooms today are unoccupied. Um, you, you've got companies like Walt Disney closing their parks and furloughing 100,000 employees. Marriott and Hilton have a significant percentage of their hotel, hotels closed. Um, and more than 50% of all luxury hotels are closed. Um, while only, interestingly, only 7% of the economy hotels are closed. Um, very different number of, of employees. Um, one of the segments that's been doing better than, than others has been the extended stay, where someone is, you know, moved to, a, they're in a city for an extended period on a, on a business um, assignment. And so they're in an extended stay where they were going to be there for a month, two, three months. And, and so they've, they're in the middle of that booking. They're sheltering in place while they're there uh, or they're still working while they're there. And so those hotels uh, have actually done better than, than the others. Um, from the employees, again, I think it's important to note, Eddie, that roughly 70% of employees in the industry have been laid off or furloughed. And we've got some hotel companies that have actually ceased operating all their hotels. The entire portfolio is closed. And, and in the hotel industry, there, there's a company called STR, um, and that's the key um, source of data for the hotel industry. And when I was looking at the, the STAR, the STR report, the weekend during April 18th, I haven't pulled up the last week's report um, in time for this call to go through the metrics, but the one from the 18th said that occupancy had declined 64.4% down to 23.4%. So 23.4% of all hotels U.S. 
is all that was occupied. And the average daily rate went down 42.2% to $74.53. And, and so when you take occupancy times rate, you get what's called rev, REVPAR, revenue per available room. And the REVPAR, which is the key metric in the hotel industry, it was falling from 79, it was, was falling, excuse me, 79.4%, so that the rev part was down to $17.43. So again, that was rev part falling 79.4%. I've been doing this a long time. Nobody in the business has ever seen numbers like that before. I mean, I've been watching the star reports weekly, and it's just been staggering to see how the rev part has fallen fallen and, and it's, it's just nothing I could have ever seen before. It was interesting, I was looking at a, a United Nations World Tourism Organization report and, and they were uh, reporting, because I was looking at this from a global perspective, that 96% of all the worldwide destinations that they track have completely or partially closed their borders to tourists. So we had 90, they had reported 90 different destinations had closed to tourists and and 44 more were close to certain tourists, depending on the country of origin. Um, another short point to, to share is I was talking to the CEO of a hotel company on Friday, and, and his entire um, hotel, all their hotels were closed. And, and I asked him when he thought they'd be in a position to open again. And, and there was a pause, and he said, Rick, I have no idea. No idea. And this is a company that a few months ago was just doing great, and, and now their entire portfolio was closed. Well, so, uh, you know, to continue on, on recovery, what what do you think are some things and things to look out uh, for for recovery? I mean, are we going to be seeing conferences and, and large gatherings like that go forward in the fall? Or are there things that we, sh you know, family offices and and, and and individuals that look at the hotel space uh, should look at as, as indicators that things are getting better? Sure, so it's a great question. So I, let, me, let me share with you how I sort of view this in the different segments and what I think we'll, we'll see. We'll start with the groups, as you mentioned, you know, the conferences and group business. So group business is a key segment for the industry. Obviously this is where all the, the major group conferences that, that we all go to, whether in the legal industry or in the banking industry, you know, in any industry, they all have their own uh, large annual or semi-annual groups. And, and those major bookings support uh, enormous amounts of business in the hotel space. Um, and, and they were all, as I think everyone realizes, were canceled in February and March. And, and what's interesting, though, is that these group bookings are often made years in advance. So whether you're, you know, whatever industry you're in, you know, but these groups book up because they're large, you know, they can have hundreds and thousands or thousands of attendees, and, and they, because of that, they book um, their cities, they rotate cities often, and they book these reservations years in advance. And so if you cancel one, finding another hotel that you can rebook to is not easy. There aren't that many big hotels, and then and they're booked up during the future. So if you canceled a booking in in March, and you wanted now try to rebook it into uh, October or November, good luck. That's not going to be easy to do because those October November bookings were booked a year or two, three years ago, 
and somebody's already got those, and they're planning to keep them. So a lot of these large groups, uh, meetings that have been canceled, they're just going to have to roll off, miss this year, and pick it up the following year, and, and that business then is just gone. And for those that could rebook or that are going to keep going, uh, let's say hold their event that's, that's scheduled in October, November, I think the problem that we're going to see, Eddie, is that, that many people just won't go or the, not as many people will go because as we come out of this, um, companies are going to reduce their business spend. They're going to conserve cash. So to that conference where a company may have said, we're going to send five people to that event, they may now send one, maybe two, maybe none. So that's, we're going to see that segment of business very, very slow to recover. And again, I think as we think about that group as well, one of the very basic problems that, that obviously we know is there, as the elephant in the room, of course, is, is when, when are people going to feel safe enough to get on a plane and travel to a conference and, and be, feel safe enough to attend a large group gathering, you know, where social distancing is, is now the, the key metric here that we're all, you know, working through, and, and when do they feel safe, will they feel safe to stay in a hotel room? You know, this is obviously the huge industry that we're all going to have to deal with before any hotels are going to see significant group business again. And then we've got the business traveler um, as another key part of our industry. And, and I think that last point is the same one that applies here. Um, when are companies going to authorize the expenditure, how much expenditure for people to get back out on the road, um, go to their business meetings, and, and more importantly, you know, when will the company feel safe for their employees to travel, and will that person feel safe to, to again, get on a plane and go stay at a hotel? So that segment, I think, will um, come out faster than the group that will move more quickly. But, again, I think it's, again, going to be slow to recover based on sort of the carburetor effect of both the businesses approving the expenditures as well as the safety issue. The one that will probably pick up the quickest is the leisure traveler. I think we've got you know, the affluent uh, individual family that's been sitting there locked up um, at home. Um, they have the financial wherewithal. They don't need a, a corporate um, uh, budget to approve it, um, the, the getting on the plane and traveling. They've got the financial wherewithal to do it, and I think that will be the one that recovers first where people just decide they want to head out, got to get some fresh air, head off to the beach um, or some other location where they can um, get back to that sense of normalcy um, and getting out again. So we, we've got some surveys that have been done uh, that have been tracking that, and uh, the surveys actually are, are pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if you want me to go through some of the numbers, Eddie, but they they do show that this segment is, is pretty encouraging um, that we'll see tourism rise in in coming through the, this summer and the remainder of this year as there's clearly an indication that families are looking to get out in vacation this summer. Um, and And actually, it was interesting that 42 percent of the people said they're ready to make a reservation now um, if it was risk-free. 
and, and, and by risk-free to them, they were focusing on, you know, can I get my deposit back and can I cancel for free if, if I find that I can't yet travel safely uh, and, and, and do so. But we're seeing some really good indicators that the leisure travel will, will bounce back um, both on a U.S. basis and international basis once people feel uh, it, it's safe, safe to go. Um, so I think the, the last metric maybe that I'll, I'll give you um, is that as bad as the numbers are today, um, you know, the, the near future is unknown because um, we just don't know when, when we'll get that sense in the, in the public of that safety that we're all looking for uh, as to when people will go out and travel again and, and the sector will stabilize. Um, where occupancies will stabilize, rates will, will stabilize, um, and, and hotels will be open and again reach profitability. And, and there's been a lot of debate going on about that, but in, in, as I speak to people in the industry, both the owners, the operators, and, and the other consultants, advisors, what, what some are suggesting is that the hotel demand, you know, for the occupancy here, and the average daily rates may recover to pre-COVID-19 levels in, in 2022 with the REVPAR recovery in early 2023. So that's at least what I'm hearing uh, from others. So on that backdrop, do you see opportunities in the hotel space for family offices and other investors, you know, either now or in a post-COVID-19 you know, environment? Uh, interesting uh, question because we are currently, besides the, the, the conversations I'm having with clients like I described and those that are, um, you know, other co companies that are dealing with the PPP process as they're weaving through those applications and, and does it apply to them or doesn't it apply to them, um, there's really um, an interesting process right now for of family offices um, looking at the industry and and dealing with with the current situation. So, you know, right now we we see a number of, of families talking to um, the lenders as to um, you know pre-negotiation agreements, forbearance on, on on debt service. I mean, obviously the the family offices are are financially sound enough to to deal with this, but they are at least probing the question of, you know, some forbearance maybe on, on some debt service for a window here while these hotels are all closed um, and maybe rolling some of the debt into the loan um, for repayment later once the properties are operating and income's coming in. Um, but what, what we're also having a lot of discussion about right now is that a number of family offices are looking at distress, distressed environment as an opportunity. So we've been getting calls from a number of, of family offices as to their interest in purchasing distressed debt uh, and or distressed assets. Um, one family office that, that's a MES lender on a hotel uh, reached out to us as to the circumstances of possibly foreclosing on that MES debt uh, because their borrower has told them that they aren't going to be able to pay, and so they're evaluating their situation. 
Um, and, and in the last week, two different family offices contacted us um, as to their desire to purchase distressed hotel debt uh, and assets. So I, I think that activity, those conversations are starting. Um, that activity is happening. Um, right now, I think the lenders are trying to be patient and understanding just to see how this is going to play out, um, whether this is, you know, travel is going to pick up and hotels will open again and occupancy and, and, and rate issues will, will move up um, to where these hotels can operate profitably and debt service can get covered. I, I think lenders are a little concerned about the, the optics reputationally of uh, foreclosing on, on these owners right now, and, and they're trying to, I think, be uh, a little bit patient to, to see how this plays out. But we are seeing a lot of conversations start as to, as to what uh, the opportunities are and solutions to deal with the distressed um, circumstances that are certainly prevalent in the market. So, uh, Rick, we've talked a lot about how family offices and owners are looking at this space. You know, you know. For a last question here, what about what about guests? What do what do you think is going to change uh, from the perspective of a a, a guest post COVID nineteen, and how do they feel? get that sense of safety uh, that you you talked about earlier. No, that's, I, I wish I knew, uh, but, but let me give you at least my, my instincts on, on what I think we'll see. Um, everyone is focused on, on this issue of safety and security for the guests and the employees. It, it's, there's not a, a, a hotel owner operator that I'm speaking with that isn't talking about this. Um, I got a call <clears throat> from a general counsel of a hotel company yesterday um, talking about, you know, is it okay for us to take temperatures of people coming in and, and how our guests feel about that? And, um, and, and, and what if, if somebody does have a temperature, you know, what can we do to say, you know, can we send them away? Do we, how do we deal with that? So th this is really a key timely question, but, but I think that the key is to focus on how we get guests to be confident that they've got a safe, secure, and clean room. You know, and if you think about hotel guests have always been looking for that. Every, everyone always wants to have a safe, secure, and clean room. Um, the difference here is that I think that has a whole new meaning today than it had a, a few months ago. Um, and it'll have a different meaning for, I think, years ahead. Um, you know, w when people are ready to fly or drive to a hotel, you know, the guests and patrons are going to need to be convinced that the hotel is not only clean but sanitized. You know, what this means will need to be redefined. Um, you know, that, that the room, the hotel being sanitized in a way that people never contemplated before being so that people are comfortable ordering room service, you know, having that housekeeper come into their room, being comfortable to go to the restaurant in the hotel. You know, what about the pool area, the spa, the exercise facilities? You know, these are things that people really look forward to experiencing when they went to a hotel or resort. And these experiences that are a key aspect um, to a hotel guest will now need to be carefully addressed and I think um, defined in a different way. 
and, and I think that the hotel industry is, is really looking at this of how people check in may be different. You know, the, the virtual check-in, um, your, your check-in card using our, our smartphones differently to access our rooms, which already exist in some properties. So I think that, is, that, that this industry will, will redefine itself to be able to clearly establish that sense of safety and security for the guests and the employees in a way that lets this industry become robust again um, and that we can all get out and enjoy um, those favorite destinations that we all look forward to going to with our, our friends and families. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, I really appreciate your insights and, and for joining uh, me today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Rick, or if you have any questions, you can send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. That's familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more in your inbox and learn about how we help family offices. That uh, website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office, bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Uh, thank you again, Rick. And uh, thank all of you for uh, joining us today. Well, that's it. Uh, check back uh, for the podcast for our next podcast next week and uh, updates on our site and social in the coming days. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.